Now, you've been planning this party at Winterfell. You're getting all your boys together. You're lining up all your troops on the ridge. They, they're there. He's there to party. He's been trying to get the Three-Eyed Raven for, for how many years? He's not going to miss this. Welcome back to Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the juggernaut HBO series, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside him is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And the King B. I'm not spending my last few hours with you miserable old shits. And this is our deep dive episode where we look back at this week's episode of Game of Thrones and share our insights, research, and opinions this week's episode was entitled A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, where Jamie faces judgment and Winterfell prepares for the battle to come. It's now been 24 hours since we watched the episode. We've had some time to kind of digest it after our Instacast. Guys, what do you think? Well, they certainly didn't leave anything out. You know, there's a lot of gripes online and complaints, or maybe that's just what Twitter is these days. You know, I don't think we've ever seen a story like this before. There's really no rule or formula how it's supposed to be told. While I'm really looking forward to this action, I'm always going to want more of these uh, displays of the relationships and the dynamics between these characters that are left. You know, I said on the Instacast that I expected the audience was going to complain about the show being too slow, the plot not advancing, nothing happening, no deaths, no battles. And now after 24 hours, I'm really proud of the audience largely for understanding why these episodes happened. I don't give enough credit to the Game of Thrones audience. And my favorite part of the widespread reaction out there is how many things we have to talk about after this nothing happened episode. We're laughing about the giant's milk. We're bracing for the grief of losing favorite characters. We're cheering for the triumph of Brienne. We're theorizing about the preparations that we saw as Winterfell gets ready for battle. And of course, everyone's reacting to Arya's sex scene, but they're reacting in different ways. There's a spectrum of takes from like juvenile, you know, chuckles and memes all the way to like politically astute observations about empowerment of a woman. Uh, so all in all, just uh, I think it was a really powerful episode. Some people are saying the best ever. I don't know about that, but really damn good. You know, I'm going to assume that there is a, a silent group that felt it was too slow and it was just fan service and it was just spending time with these characters that we didn't need. It was just filler. Hey, we only have four episodes left and uh, you really got to take a second. For me, the second time watching it, I was less worried about, hey, is there going to be a battle? Are we going to get to be a battle that I could just sit back and watch? And if you're one of those people who thinks it was too slow, watch the additional like 20 minute thing that HBO puts out the next day. It's called The Game Revealed. And they go into behind the scenes what made the episode happen. And this is the one that I would recommend for most people. They go into the detail of how they built the set. They had a bakery where they were making bread, a brewery for wine. It was a full working castle. And it allowed them to focus on the characters, but also show the preparation for war. We rarely see this. We just see, hey, people are getting ready. We're going to be attacked. This was the buildup to it. And on second watching, I just sat back and just watched all the details I had seen. And it became clear to me that this was less about what was on screen with the characters reconnecting. It was more for us, the watchers, to remember the incredibly long journey that a lot of these characters have had. 
you have when Jorah is asking Daenerys to forgive Tyrion. I started reminiscing, and he said something like, you know, he wouldn't shut up. There were times I wanted to throw him off the boat into the sea. And I'm like, holy shit, there was a season or two that there was the roadshow of them just getting to Daenerys, the grayscale, all the things that Jorah had done that were forgiven long ago. You know, then you have Theon and Sansa, Arya and the Hound, Arya and Gendry, John and his Nightwatch recruit brothers, but none were longer than Bran and Jamie. And for me, what was going on the screen was less than was less important than me reminiscing how long it has taken us to get to this point. You know, guys, for me, the meat of this episode really centered around uh, Jamie Lannister. Kind of bleeds into his his relationship with Brienne of Tarth. That episode starts with Jamie standing in front of the Queen and everyone else, and he's only got one friend in that whole room. Really, he's only got one friend in the whole world. Every one of his other relationships is kind of disintegrated, but there's that mutual admiration between Brienne and Jamie. It's probably my absolute favorite. They see shining qualities in the other that no one else in the realm even cares to acknowledge. Jamie comes from this high status and position, and he looks at Brienne, this person of low position or lower position, and sees in in her everything that people should be aspiring to. She's looking back at him, and she sees what he is capable of because of who he is, uh, despite of his reputation. It's the dynamic that I think is probably one of the most endearing. Yeah, with Jamie, when he, he has uh, that conversation with Bran at the Godswood, and he says, I'm not that man anymore. He really is not that man in- anymore. And he's having a conversation with Tyrion, and he says, you know, that first time we were here, you were that golden lion. You look at Jamie now, he is he's a beaten down man. He admits he's not that fighter anymore. He's kind of broken. And for him to come to Brienne and say, I wanted to come to serve under you. That's a big moment, and that's that's a bigger change than anything else Jamie's done, that he respects this fellow knight. He respects her as a warrior, and there, there's an emotional unsaid component that I think we can't underestimate. Now, one of the scenes people marked as kind of some fat in this episode, people say, yeah, this is a great episode, except was a scene with Sir Davos where he's kind of serving food to the people of Winterfell, recruiting them for service to fight the army of the dead and we have the little girl who comes up who by the way i thought looked a heck of a lot like uh sarah huckabee sanders oh come on a little weird there but she's got the she's got the scar on her face the opposite side of shireen baratheon and a lot of people groaned at this uncharacteristically sentimental scene i got really tinfoily about it. i'm like what's the significance is that melisandre or could it be that the little girl is a reincarnation of shireen But beyond all that, there's a very specific reason why it's there, even if it goes nowhere, even if that's the last time we see that little girl. And it's a callback to legacy. Ken L. wrote in about it on the Small Council podcast. Many of these defenders of Winterfell are fighting the dead for the dead. They're fighting for the memory of something that once was. Shireen had this bond with Davos, and we see it illustrated here. But another person in this scene that's important is Gilly. If you remember, Gilly, who is kind of ushering everybody into the crypts, was taught to read by Shireen. I think there's a knowing look there, too. These two are looking back on their past, on someone that made a difference, and that's what everybody's fighting for. They're fighting for the people who made a difference in their lives. The Starks had their losses, the Tullys, the Baratheons, the Wildlings. 
And the fact that we're even having this conversation means that this scene worked. Was it perfect? Maybe not, but it had an impact on the viewer. And again, we can't fault a show and saying, oh, I would have done it this way or the other. The basic question comes, did it do its job? Was it enjoyable to watch? I say, yeah. Uh, so my opinion on this changed dramatically my second time viewing. I think the first time through, I told you, come on, what the fuck? Why are we trying to win hearts and minds? This is Oliver Twist handing out porridge to the poor hungry kids. Second time through, I'm like, holy shit, this is only like a 10, 15 second scene. It is really quick. I don't know why the hell I had such a problem with it the first time, but the second time through, it's it's giving you that background preparation for war. You're getting the, the old, the infirm, the kids down to the crypt. Uh, so I did not have a problem with it the second time through. It was just one additional little detail. I, I don't know why it bothered me so much. It didn't second time through. I'm going to speculate here a little bit, but the Onion Knight, his whole family's been taken away from him. He had that relationship with Shireen. She, he loved her like a daughter. Uh, he's always been sort of just a caretaker for other people. And what's he doing in this scene? He's handing out soup to people. This guy, I don't think, has these highfalutin or big connections with these others so much as he's just always been of service. And I think what they're really just doing is maybe just reinforcing that he's there to help people. Another show, a lesser show, would have had Davos look down and pull out of his pocket that burned wood carving of the stag. And then he would have looked at the girl as she walked away. That's what an AMC series would have done. That's what a network show would have done. That would have been a problem. But this, it was enough of a callback that had you remember that emotional tie. In the FX version, you'd have someone go, waiter, there's a finger in my soup. Because he's missing fingers. You see. Oh. For me, the callback and the the relationship that we kind of are taking down memory lane that that was the, the most emotional for me was Ari and the Hound. That journey spanned probably almost about a you know a season and a half from the hound who ran down and killed the butcher boy, and he was like tops of the list on Arya's hit list. He takes her first to Winterfell and tries to return her, saves Arya from the Red Wedding because she would have gone in there and tried to to fight her way in and would have died. So for the hound to sit there and be questioned, you know, when's the last time you fought for something? When's the last time you cared about anything other than yourself? And he looks at her, he says, I protected you once. Don't you remember that? And I had all those moments of this little child and this big, angry man, Joffrey's guard, who she despised. And to come to this point now where there's a mutual respect, it, it was a great, great reconnecting for me. Comedy even served a historical purpose or a callback. You know, we get the scene uh, near the fire where everyone's kind of gathering around, the, the nighting scene for uh, Brienne of Tarth. Brienne tells Podrick he can have half a glass of wine, and Tyrion fills it up until it's overflowing. It's spilling everywhere. We haven't seen this Tyrion in a long time. He used to be this playful fellow, but lately he's been drinking less, whoring less, jesting less. And aside from a particularly cruel joke about Varys's uniqueness, uh, Tyrion's been really stoic in, in the last few episodes, if not you know the entire last season. So I kind of relish seeing this flash of the fun this character used to be. It reminded me of why we fell in love with this character in the first place, that you realize he's the clever one. The joke's always on everybody else. And although he is a, a tragic figure in a lot of ways and his life has not been easy, he's always the one pulling a fast one on everyone else. And I think Peter Dinklage killed it, you know, splashing the wine, giving a little wink to Podrick. And you know me, Big D, I don't normally like this sort of thing, but it worked. It worked so well, and I was amazed by how they did it. The, the subtle humor is what really worked for me. You remember, a lot of these characters have never been in the same room with each other. Jamie doesn't know who the fuck Tormund is. 
And when Tormund pulls up the chair and he's sitting there just staring at Brienne longingly, and he tells a story of, you want to know why they call me Giant's Bane? And he starts to drink, and it's spilling all over his beard. The camera pans, and Jamie's just looking around the room like, who the fuck is this guy? And then, of course, the, the Onion Knight, Davo says, you know what? I'll have that drink. That, to me, is so much funnier than just these one-liners that Tyrion tries to throw out. People like the Hound and people like Tormund, they are today who they've always been. Uh, the Tormund scene is great. Uh, for the record, that's exactly how I flirt with women. And throughout the show, the Hound has really had the best one-liners as far as I'm concerned. You know, that line on the wall, he goes, you know, he brought you back 19 times just to watch you die a 20th when I chuck you over this fucking wall. He just lives in the world as the Hound. He doesn't, uh, he's not beholden to anyone and he doesn't give a fuck. And before we get past it, I do kind of want to touch base real quick on, you know, there's a lot of flack about people saying that they can't stand to see Arya this way, that, you know, she was like a little sister to them. And I think it's just emotionally childish. You know, this show that we're watching, it's a new thing. We're seeing the entire life arcs of characters take place. We're seeing children grow to adults. A lot of children not make it to adults. And Arya has earned the right. I mean, through the things she's been with and the path she's taken, she's earned the right to want for adult things. Yeah. And, and we're going to address this in the small council because I read an email quick where somebody was talking again about that. Oh, oh, well, nobody had a problem with the rape scenes with Daenerys early on. The problem is this. I'll lay it out simply. Kirsten Dunst was a child in Interview with a Vampire. When I see her doing nude scenes now, my brain still remembers that child. So it's not the age of the character. It's, not, it's when you see that person as a child, then doing adult things. I imagine the day that I see my nephews either smoking or drinking a beer, I'll have that same reaction like, oh, what are you doing? I would counter that, though, and say that Kirsten Dunn's performance in that movie was beyond that of anything a child could deliver. I mean, at that age, she was a phenom, and that performance was way out there. At this point, again, it goes back to Arya. Just she's not a child. She was at one point, and yeah, we, were, we saw that, but now we're seeing something different. One other callback I wanted to touch on was something I tweeted about, actually, unknowing of the significance of it. I tweeted last night that when Podrick started singing is when I really lost it. Like I was crying intermittently throughout the episode, but I'm like sobbing at the point that he starts singing the song. And I didn't realize it has amazing significance to the overall storyline. Yeah. So music has always played a key role in Game of Thrones. They don't throw in music or a song without it having some meaning. You got to pay attention to it. If you were watching The Red Wedding and you were really paying attention, you would have noticed that the musicians started playing The Reigns of Casimir very badly, and that would have tipped you off. You would have known what was coming. You wouldn't have had this big surprise. So at the end of this episode, when Jamie, Tyrion, Brienne, Podrick, Davos, the whole crew, they're sitting there drinking together, and Tyrion asks the group if they're going to sing a song. Everybody declines but Podrick. And yes, it sounds like it's just a somber tune to make us reminisce and the camera can pan around the room, but there's a lot more to the song. So this song actually is in the book. It's in A Song of Ice and Fire. And the song is known as Jenny's Song. It's about a woman named Jenny of Oldstone and her prince, Duncan Targaryen, who was Daenerys's great uncle. And it's particularly pertinent to this because of Daenerys's and Jon's romantic situation and their sights and they're, they're trying to get on the Iron Throne. So the key to understanding Jenny's song lies with the Targaryen family tree. 
So Daenerys had two brothers who are now deceased. Viserys, we all know him. I want my crown. And Rhaegar, who was also Jon's dad, who died prior to the series starting. So, so their father was Ares II Targaryen. You know him as the Mad King. He was killed by Jaime. And the curious thing, though, is that Ares II wasn't the actual first in line succession for the Targaryens. It would have been Duncan Targaryen. So the TV show implies and changes the Targaryen family line that Duncan is Ares II's brother on the show and his uncle in the book. But essentially, you know, all we need to know is that Duncan Targaryen gave up his claim to the Iron Throne, and he did so by marrying a woman named Jenny of Oldstone. And this angered his family, who was also planning to have a political marriage. So on the TV show, Ares II was the next in line of succession after Duncan was out of the picture. But in the books, it was Ares II's father and then Ares II. So if it wasn't for Duncan putting Jenny above his claim to the Iron Throne, Ares II would never have ascended to the throne. So the song that Podrick sings about Jenny is not about the joy of Duncan and Jenny's love. Instead, it's about love lost. And here's the lyrics. And only the first two lines are original from the book. The rest of them were written by the double Ds and were added for the show. So we know they had a hand in it and they have to mean something. So the lyrics go, high in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts, the ones she had lost and the ones she had found, and the ones who had loved her the most. The ones who'd been gone for so very long, she couldn't remember their names. They spun her around on the damp, cold stone, spun away her sorrow and pain, and she never wanted to leave. So Duncan and Jenny in the song, it parallels what's going on right now in the show between John and Daenerys. At the end of the episode, when John tells Daenerys what he learned from Sam and, and Bran the week before, that he's actually a Targaryen, and he's the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark, she acknowledges that if this is true and he's the last heir of the Targaryen family line, that his right to the throne or his claim supersedes hers, that in order for either John or Daenerys to claim the Iron Throne, the other would theoretically have to give it up and perhaps out of love. So looking ahead, it's much easier for me to imagine that John would take the Duncan route since Danny has long believed the Iron Throne is part of her destiny. And John kind of just stumbled into it, just fell into it. I could see him giving up the throne for love. Uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. I mean, it's it's just we're trying to figure out how the song could play and what they're going to tell us, because we don't even know if the Iron Throne is going to exist, you know, and you would need that for someone to make a claim. But in the end, I believe that the song is telling us that the parallels between Duncan and the situation we have right now is that someone is going to be forced to choose love over the throne, and that can end in death and longing and sorrow. So whether it's John or Donnie who's going to end up giving up their destiny for love, there's no guarantee. I mean, we don't even know if they're both going to make it. One of our writers, Ashley Shafley, who who writes in all the time, she sent an email late in the day that goes into a little more of the historical book context for this for the song. And I think tied in with mine, it's not there by accident. King B said last episode that he was worried this was going to turn into a battle, that John and Daenerys were going to fight over the throne it's much more likely that one acquiesces to the other and chooses love. And if the song tells us anything, that's not going to end in a happy situation. It's mostly going to end in sorrow and one of them dying. I originally got to thinking that the political solution that works for all this is if the living survive, you just don't have a united seven kingdoms, right? You split it up a little bit, let everybody do their own thing, make it a little more, for lack of better words, democratic. But 
it wouldn't be true to the, the story, right? The story has to end with some much more powerful conclusion. I think that's what the showrunners are really trying to point us toward as well. There will be tragedy. There will be powerful uh, machinations and movements among these parties. And one interesting aspect we haven't mentioned is how much prophecy plays into all this. And if you're into prophecy, definitely stick around for the small council on Friday because we got a lot of that coming up. We're two episodes into a six episode final season of a show. And there might be a tendency or a gut feeling that the plot isn't going anywhere. We're spending too much time in rooms with people having conversations. Nothing's really happening. And I thought about that. And there's a reason why the plot isn't advancing. It's because the plot is landing. The point of episode two was to show us who everyone is as winter arrives. All these people at Winterfell, this is where their arcs land. All these ships are coming to port. We need this to happen so that when this battle of Winterfell happens and we lose people and storylines end, they are truly final. Really don't think of this as we're not going anywhere because where would we go? Are we going to go to new lands? Are we going to introduce new characters? What do we want out of this tale? We've got a broad sweeping story, rich histories, tons of characters. This is where it all comes together. This is the characters last night together. After this episode, it is going to be a sprint to the end. You needed this. If you didn't think that seven seasons and eight years plus of your life were worth it, sit down, reminisce, remember, take that moment to just think of what's coming and you'll never be here again. In a few weeks, you're going to know how it all ends and then you're probably going to go back and you'll watch these episodes and when you know what the ultimate fate of the characters are, this is one of the ones that I could see myself going back in a year or two and rewatching. Yeah, dragons are great. Knights are great. People fighting and cutting. But the reason everybody watches it is to see the characters grow, to see them travel through the world and develop. And this was the culmination of all those years of building. People talk about the the Marvel movies. It took, what, 11 years to weave those storylines together to come to uh, Endgame coming up? This is the equivalent of that. They, they've stuck that emotional landing for me. So now if they can just do the the other action part, I think we're well on our way to something that's uh, satisfying to most. This is a story that's got a scope and a breadth that I don't think has ever been attempted on TV before. You know, when you watch sitcoms, there's a formula or medical dramas, there's a formula. And this is something that's completely new. There is no model for how you're going to structure a story like this. I think if you were to change it up and mix these last two episodes with any sort of action, that you'd complain that they were just wasting time. It kind of at points does feel like it's a checklist, but I can't imagine how else you make this information come across or how you tell this story. With the upcoming war, you're just not going to have the breathing room for the things that you have to address today and now. And I made a quick list of characters that we see at Winterfell and how we know that they're fully baked out. They are complete at this point. Starting with Sansa, she goes from little princess to prime minister, right? So she started out as potentially the most unlikable character on the show. I remember hating Sansa. She's blinded by fairy tales. She's obsessed with being a southerner. She wants to go to King's Landing. She hates it in Winterfell. She antagonizes Arya. She's obsessed with Joffrey, like the worst guy ever. <laughs> Even to the point of betraying Arya and Nymeria, uh, after Nymeria attacked Joffrey, and that resulted in her own wolf lady being killed. She then, after all that, still bowed to the Lannisters. She was with them in King's Landing, even after they killed her father. But as horror upon horror descended upon this girl, she grew into the very spirit of Winterfell. 
She has landed. She is complete. Like, where would you have her character go from here? Nowhere. It doesn't need to. John, uh, who goes from bastard to badass, you know, so John starts out as this illegitimate child. Cat Stark does not like him. She doesn't want him. He's a symbol and a reminder of Ned's supposed infidelity. He almost didn't even get his own wolf. He had to get the albino one, right? The runt. He was a half-brother until he thought he'd found a full brotherhood in the Night's Watch. There they made fun of him. He's Lord Snow. He's a joke. He's an outcast. Then he gets north of the wall and eventually becomes Lord Commander of the Watch. Then he dies. Then he comes back. Then he becomes King of the North. And now he's Warden and heir to the Iron Throne. So... His story may be not complete, but it certainly doesn't need four more episodes to develop, right? He's either king or king of the north or dead again. That's pretty much where it goes. You can go to Daenerys, right? She goes from being property to being a powerhouse. So she arguably started as the biggest victim in this show. Everything was happening to her, right? She's abused by her brother. She's sold to call Drogo essentially for sex. The physics of which still terrify me. She's learned the ways of a new people uh, with the Dothraki, and she flourished while Viserys, who couldn't adapt, perished. After Drogo died and her pregnancy failed, she found a new purpose. She became the mother of dragons. She made allies. She made enemies. She fell in love again. She found her purpose and a path to the throne, and now she's arguably the most powerful person in Westeros. Where do you want her to go from here? Her development is done. All she could do now is just act on who she is, which is where we are at Winterfell. Uh, you can go to Theon. You know, he was like uh, the, the playboy and now he's the protector. He is probably in this show like the most direct life lesson we can learn. He's driven by his cock. He loses his cock. He was reduced to nothing. And now he's Lady Sansa Stark's closest friend. So he found peace in who he is. His internal struggle is over. That's his story. So live or die, he's complete. I mean, mostly uh, Jamie Lannister. He was the rogue and then he's now positioned to be the martyr as big D, as you said on the Instacast, how are we supporting a man who stabbed the king in the back, crippled a child to mask the fact that he was fucking his sister, married to the new king, and then fought against our heroes, the Starks in open combat. Jamie was everything we're taught to hate in the beginning. He was rich. He was vain. He was lethal. He was cocky. And now he's forsaken his family. He dresses drably. He can only fight with his offhand. And he takes it as an honor to serve under Sir Brienne. So Jamie has come here to die for the living. This is the end of his arc. It doesn't even make sense for him to live after this. King B, you mentioned the Hound. You know, he's here. He's gone from thug to outcast. And he maybe didn't move as much as the rest. He kind of arguably was always good or at least not the worst. But he never wanted the title of knight. He sees the hypocrisy in his evil brother's title. He's literally the underdog, despite his uncommon strength. And if you look at his track record, he really wasn't that bad. He was basically just a nihilist. He's steady. He's the salt that adds flavors to scenes. But what would you have him become? Do you want him to develop into a peaceful farmer or get a shiny coat of armor and become a true knight? This is it for him. This is Sandor Clegane. He's done developing. Oh, I'm going to dress all yours at the end. Keep going. <laughs> all right. Arya, she goes from tomboy to terror, right? So she knew from the start that she didn't want to be a little girl in the traditional sense. She fell in love with Needle. She stuttered under Sirio. She learned from Jockin. She dove headlong into death and became what she always wanted to be, a warrior. So now she has this tremendous power and an even more powerful sense of who she is. What other plot does the audience want to hand her? Like, where does she need to go from here? This is the finished product. This is Arya. And I think they capped it off with her kind of advancing into womanhood, showing that she is an adult now and she can make decisions about sex and other things. 
every character in Winterfell follows this route. Sam goes from Craven to Keen Mind. Davos goes from Smuggler to Salvation. Jorah from the Slaver into the Vanguard. The point is you need a point where all these stories come together and end. And that's why episode two happened. We're tying up the loose ends. We're not trying to create new threads. This is all about closure. So a couple of my favorite uh, memories that you kind of skipped over there. Uh, You said that the Hound was not that bad of a guy. Besides the fact that he ran down the butcher's boy and killed him, uh, do you also remember the time that the Hound and Arya were were stuck and they needed someone to help protect them? And a family took them in, a farmer and his daughter. And the Hound turned around and took their silver. What about the poor guy on the side of the road who needed help with his wagon wheel? Do you remember that guy? He was going to kill him until Arya protected him. Next, Jamie Lannister. Yes, he had sex with his sister, but do we remember the time that he basically raped his sister next to the coffin of his dead son? That was, <laughs> you have to come back from that's a great one. Uh, yes, Sansa, she's done some shitty things, but could anything be shittier than convincing her father to admit in public that yes, he was a traitor and had planned against Joffrey and that gave him the okay to behead him? That was a pretty bad one. And then, you know, you just have that Sansa was basically a dick, like you said, to Arya and to John, you know. But other than that, everybody's been fine, upstanding citizens. But I would argue that these characters, every one of them, definitely paid the cost for who they chose to be. So, I mean, that's part of the arc. I generally don't read the emails before we record the deep dive. But they've been coming in so fast and furious that we've been trying to keep up at least browsing through them, organizing them. Somebody wrote in and and I tried to address it on the small council and said that characters often die in the way that they lived or the way that they killed. And that I think is ironic. You think of the way that some of these people have killed, you're wondering about the the way they're going to meet their fate next episode. Yes, I do wonder. So I know some listeners are out there going, all right, guys, great. We all remember all these things. Let's talk about the Battle of Winterfell to come. It is coming. I don't think there's any doubt about that. People are looking for like surprise twists and turns. There may be a few in combat, but HBO has pretty much come out and said it. You look at the director's notes, you look at the length of the episode, we're in for a shit show. Reportedly, the longest battle ever filmed for TV or film. It's going to be exhausting. And we talked about the preparations that they're making at Winterfell. What we haven't talked much about is the Army of the Dead and what they have going for them. I think if you wanted to make the audience's head exploded, could you imagine if they gave us an episode next week of of Cersei and Euron in King's Landing trying to <laughs> establish a relationship? People, the internet would melt down. But <laughs> thankfully, we're not going to get that. And In the Instacast viewing, I completely missed something. We watch it so quick, we run to the computers, we jot down some quick thoughts, and then we record. I completely missed that final shot. I think I said in the Instacast that it looked like a handful of of white walkers. It was clearly not a handful of white walkers. So I want to talk about the reveal there, where we're going, and what we learned. Because there was a big reveal at the end there, if you didn't catch it. If you didn't have a good TV, you might have missed it. So as the series has gone on, We have never seen more than 12 or 13 adult White Walkers on screen at any point. And I'm basing that off of the final scene in episode four of season four, Oathkeeper, where we watch the the White Walkers and see what they do with uh, Craster's babies, where they take them to the land of this always winter, and the Night King converts the baby. 
there's a line behind the Night King that you only see 12 plus the Night King, but it looks like 13 based on the spacing. Then again, in the ending of season two, episode 10, Valor Margulis, we get to see five to 10 White Walkers. Um, but the special effects house that did it came out in an interview and said that the production had told them to make 10 to 30 White Walkers in a mix of costumes. In season five, episode eight, Hard Home, we see four to five White Walkers on the top of the cliff. John actually kills one of them. Season six, episode five, The Door, it appears to be that there's three White Walkers and the Night King. Uh, when they attack Bran and the children of the forest and three-eyed raven in the tree. Uh, and earlier is when Bran receives the mark. We see three white walkers there. Season seven, Dragonstone, when Bran is spying on the dead through Greensight, you count maybe six to seven. A season seven, episode six, Beyond the Wall, it appears like there's four white walkers in the king, and then John kills one. So we've always thought, Maybe there's a handful. Maybe we've been seeing the same five or six. They're his lieutenants. You know, maybe there's not really any more. No, the final episode gives us an answer. And if you did the math, and we should have done this a long time ago, the White Walkers were created by Craster giving up his kids. There were 99 sons. Little Sam is number 100. So it's safe to say there's at least 100. Maybe there was some other, you know, free folk who were giving up their kids over the years. So there could be more, but it appears to be that there's two types of white walkers. We have the handful of the 13, which are probably the leaders of the lieutenants. They're in uniform. They all look similar. And then there's the other that are in varied states of dress. We never questioned it. Why in season two, do we see the, the, the one on horseback with no shirt on? He, he just looks like a homeless white walker, but we, he looks very different than the lieutenants. And if you do the ratio, we should have known that also. When John kills the White Walker beyond the wall, he's commanding about 10 whites. If the army of the dead is about 100,000, it doesn't make sense that this one White Walker had 10, but yet the other one, what did one have? 200? The the ratio doesn't make sense. So we should have known it right there. Well, yeah. I mean, some of them are executive White Walkers. Other ones are just in middle management. So at the end of the episode where I counted a handful, it is clearly a line. There's at least a hundred White Walkers. Did we ever get any inkling that the amount of White Walkers could be this large? Uh, this week, we had some letters into the small council kind of calculating the numbers too. But prior, I don't recall anybody saying, look, we're looking at more than you know 20. And I don't know how we missed it. In doing the research for today, when you submit an episode for an Emmy, you have to submit the script. So last year, when HBO submitted season seven, episode seven, The Dragon and the Wolf, they posted the full script online on the Emmy's website. And I'm going to read to you what it says here. How the fuck did we miss this? Exterior, Eastwatch, north side of the wall. And the script reads, emerging from the frozen coastal forest, the army of the dead comes in force. And all of them, 100,000 strong, with hundreds, plural, of White Walker officer corps and their dead horses. Humanity has greatly underestimated the amount of whites as much as we did. This has to change their strategy and the outcome that's possible at, at Winterfell. Yeah, it's weird. All the weekends I spend reading the scripts on the Emmys website, <laughs> I never came across this one. I was I was busy with uh, American Gods and uh, Taboo, Young Sheldon. <laughs> but that's but it's a terrifying thought. I mean, again. My position on this whole thing was, hey, you know what? Maybe things aren't so bad for the living. If you've got maybe 11 lieutenants, 
plus the Night King, you get a good strafing run, you knock those guys out, you got a pretty good chance, right? You always see that these supernatural armies are undone by some key weakness, or even with like, you know, War of the Worlds or uh, Independence Day, there's some critical flaw, Star Wars, that you can hit. Here, if the Night King decides to hang back and the White Walkers are hundreds, you got a problem. We see in this episode that they're training women with spears. They're like poking at like a burlap sack. These White Walkers have been training and killing for thousands of years. Every time a White Walker has been killed on screen, we're like, yeah, woo, got one of them, thinking that that death would kill thousands of the undead. Now, if you kill one, you're just going to have 10 of the Whites just fall apart. <laughs> the, the, the odds just got much worse that the humans are going to come out of this. Also, I keep going back to Hard Home. Prior to episode three, the Battle for Winterfell, go back and watch Hard Home. Jon Snow fought one White Walker. <laughs> one, yeah. And he was, and the only thing he had that really kept him from dying there was the Valerian Seal. Remember, these White Walkers, their weapons will shred through any other shit. Anything. Other than Val- Valerian Steel. And it's not like they're, uh, they're not squishy like zombies and they're not easy like whites. These guys are insanely strong. Uh, if you remember in the hard home fight between the White Walker and Jon Snow, he gets popped in his chest, flies off like a rooftop. The White Walker just hops down like nothing happened. It's like a martial art. Man, it's going to be ugly. You'd think they suckled at a giant's teat for three months or something. Oh, they got so strong. I, I can't believe I've been saying this, but I thought it'd be fun. <laughs> Here we go. To guess on a couple things that I just have no answer for. And I put up a, a poll on Twitter earlier today about the whereabouts of the Night King. I want to do a little lightning round of time to guess and get your ideas on on a few key questions. One is we don't see the Night King in the scene outside of Winterfell. Uh, some people have pointed out that you see his trademark blade, but he's off camera. We definitely see the lieutenants. Is he at Winterfell or where is the Night King? Where do you think he's going to be? He's there. He's on Viserion's back. He's flying up in the clouds. He's going to come swooping down. Bran says it essentially. He's coming for him. What you think at this big moment, he's been plotting and scheming for thousands of years. He's just going to be like, uh, you know, I'm going to go down to King's Landing. He is there. He's not going to miss this. It just seems weird that HBO is always like whenever the Night King's around, he gets a good amount of camera time. He's on top of a ridge. He's looking at something very intently. He's throwing a spear. He always gets his camera time. It seems very suspicious that he's not in this scene. I thought maybe they split the dead forces. Maybe he's going to King's Landing. He can fly. Do you remember what Aegon the Conqueror's uh, sister wife did to take the Eyrie? She just flew on one dragon, landed on the balcony, said, yo, I'm here. What if the Night King goes to King's Landing, starts torching shit, and basically you know, lays waste to the entire... I mean, it's the weakest point on the map right now. Yeah, so you're saying he's there. He's at Winterfell. No, King's Landing. Now, you've been planning this party at Winterfell. You're getting all your boys together. You're lining up all your troops on the ridge. They, they're there. He's there to party. He's been trying to get the Three-Eyed Raven for... For how many years? He's not going to miss this. All right. What about this tinfoil? Sam Tarly mentions to Bran that Bran is the memory of man, much like the books are. If the Night King wants to erase mankind and erase humanity, what if he goes to Old Town, burns all the maesters, all the books? No, because Sam said, you know, you're not the written word. You're actually man's memory. He's making the distinction that the books are less important than actually what Bran represents. Brand is what makes people human. The books don't make people human. So no, 
Jesus, no. The internet would fucking shut down. Twitter would explode. Well, you guys aren't going to like my answer. But oh, I no. He's... <laughs> The Night King's going to have just as much difficulty feeding his ice dragon, so he's probably scrambled around looking for 11 zombie sheep and 11 zombie goats. You're right. I didn't like that answer. <laughs> no. All right. Key question. Does Winterfell fall? Ooh, I'll tell you, if it does fall, it's going to be ugly because you can't, you're not going to outrun the dead. Bran's not going to get more than 30 feet outside the gate. A boy in a wheelchair, Hodor couldn't even you know get him out of that. There's no way. The wheel, you know, a wheelchair in the snow... If it does fall, every single person will die. There'll be maybe a handful that can get on horseback and escape. If the show does that, if the show just says, hey, I'm going to kill 90% of the main characters, and they could do that, that's the only way. But there's no way it's going to fall and and have at least half the cast survive. I mean, unless there's a mysterious magic tunnel that just appeared that's always been there and we never talked about it, it's going to be a bad day in Black Rock for everybody. I'm with you guys, too. I think Winterfell will fall. The odds are just too great. Big D, after you mentioned how many White Walkers there are, I'm like, this is a problem. The battle plan, to me, is just too simple. It's like, we're going to man the walls. We're going to put Bran out there in the uh, Godswood with Theon to protect him, and everything's going to be okay. I keep thinking about Hardhome, and I know it was just an outpost, but the dead are just so fucking hard to kill, and they're so fast-moving, and they're so numerous. I don't know how you win this fight. And I think Tormund was absolutely right when he's like, we're all going to die. And John, who's had a history of not learning from his past mistakes, might be doing it again. They're focusing all of their forces on the northern front, that they think that the attack is going to come from the north. He doesn't remember what happened at Battle of the Bastard, that Ramsay built a large blockade of the dead. Then he let them and lured them into battle and then encircled them with their ground troops and slowly squeezed down the circle and trapped them. Why wouldn't the Night King and now his hundreds of White Walkers encircle Winterfell, attack from all sides? There is no way you could defend that. They're not even prepared for that. They haven't even thought of that. They've got the crypts. Oh, yeah. There's enough people thinking about the crypts and you know resurrecting all of the past dead Starks. And I don't think you can resurrect anybody other than maybe Rickon because he's the freshest. But that soup scene that we talked about before where they make a conscious effort to address the children going to the catacombs because they're safe. Not only is it clear the catacombs are not safe, I got a very little bird feel from those kids. And you remember the little birds were the ones who perpetrated the explosion at the Sept of Baelor. That was the little birds. The children did it. Or when the, the little birds ambush and kill Pycelle. Little kids are crafty. They have a way of being more intuitive where adults can miss some obvious things. I could see this little girl actually saving the day. Maybe she spots a secret entrance into the catacombs. Maybe she's the first one who goes, um, um, something's not right. But I actually could see her being a hero. But these little kids, they're definitely going to come into play. Even though they're not soldiers, they're going to do something that can maybe turn the battle. And finally, I'm curious about the whereabouts of the Lannister army. Now, I know they didn't come up with uh, Jamie up north to help the war effort. But we also just haven't seen a lot of King's Landing. Every scene that we see of King's Landing is basically Cersei. We're not seeing anything else that's going on in town. We see the Golden Company you know, off the shore. I'm curious where the Lannister army actually is. Are they within the walls of King's Landing? Are they out there somewhere? And I get the sick feeling 
they're going to be a problem more than a help. If I'm Cersei Lannister, <laughs> uh, I'm not really interested in waiting to see how it shakes out. I'm not going to let whoever's left uh, bolster their forces before I deal with them. I'm willing to bet that she's on her way or well on her way and just about to arrive, not to help, but just to add a little bit more chaos to the mix. If the forces of the North are going up against the White Walkers and you've got all that chaos, a third army can just walk in and pick off whoever they want at their leisure. We have to remember that Cersei has a plan. She seems fairly confident in what she's doing. When Kyburn comes to her and says, mm, you know, I'm sorry to say that the wall has fallen, she's like, yep, good. She's happy. She's planning into that happening. Say the humans win. She doesn't give them time to recuperate. You can't let them rebuild, reinforce, and then come south. When someone is down on the mat, you put them out. You make sure that they're down for the count. And that's what made Daenerys' choice to go north and fight Jon's war even more impressive. The Lannister army had just suffered a huge defeat at the, the Battle of the Lutrain. She could have taken King's Landing. It would have been fairly easy. If Cersei were smart, she would take the Golden Company, the Lannister army, north, maybe sit at the neck, sit at the twins, and wait for whatever's left, whether it's the remaining living or the remaining dead to come south, that's her best chance to win. Attack them there at their weakest. Also, Game of Thrones loves to tell us something's never been done and then have it happen. And it's been said on the show, the Lannister army has never marched that far north. Like they've never marched all the way up to Winterfell. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty much a guarantee that they're going to march that far north. Exactly. All right. And that concludes this week's deep dive for Shadow TV Game of Thrones edition. Just a reminder, the listener mail small council comes out on Friday and we are taking emails for that up until Wednesday. Big D told me earlier today that we already had 47 <laughs> emails in before the deep dive even came out. Yeah. So I can only imagine what happens after this deep dive. You guys are crazy. I, I, I respect you all, and we're going to do our best. I always feel bad when I read these emails that people have put great thought into. I want to try to get as many as we can include if we have to truncate some down. I would love to do like we did in Westworld early on. We did like a three and a half hour listener email episode there is so much good content and gene mentions it every episode if you go to the website shatontv.com and you find whatever show it is whether it's westworld true detective you can read every single one of these emails in their entirety do yourself a favor and go read that you can comment on it start the conversation because some of the thoughts and some of the the uh, the research that people have done, it trumps anything that we do, and it's extremely impressive and appreciated. So thank you. Keep them coming. One of my favorites is when you'll read one at about 10 a.m., and then three hours later, the same person wrote back with another thought, and then three hours later, and they're all good. You're like, I, you're like, dude, I, I want to get you in this week, but I don't even know which one to pick. <laughs> I think Ken L. did it last week. Gillian did it this week. I got one today that was titled, like, uh, I know you'll think I'm crazy. And it was basically, the first line said, uh, I have a lot of time on my hands. Please forgive me. And it was a spreadsheet of characters, whether they were alive, percentages, where they were going to go. It was like a flow chart, like you were doing a presentation at work. It was equal parts amazing, crazy, and sad, but but I loved it. Yeah, that's our buddy Tom in <laughs> Chicago. We, we love you, Tom. But yeah, we really do appreciate uh, all the email. And one of the things we're going to try to do on future episodes of the Small Council, because we've had such a large volume of email, is to read more of them and have shorter reactions to them. Because really, this is your opportunity mm -hmm. after listening to us for an hour to get your voice heard. So we will try to get more in. I think we did about 15 or 16 last week. 
Uh, so we're going to try to you know add in maybe 20 or so. Please write in. Uh, be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Shat on TV. On Facebook, search for Shat on TV podcast. The website, again, is shatontv.com where you can read all of the email that comes in. Also, email us at host at shatontv.com. And you can send us a voicemail at 914-719-SHAT. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, you can do that at shatontv.com as well. Uh, we accept Amazon, PayPal, and Venmo. Just go to shatontv.com slash PayPal slash Amazon or slash Venmo. If you'd like to take our survey to help us find sponsors, just go to shatontv.com slash survey. And remember, wherever where fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube, be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please leave a review that helps the podcast grow. We get those reviews daily and they always bring a smile to our faces, good and bad, <laughs> including ones that identify podcast members who aren't even on the pod. Or that host we have, Ben, he's a real asshole. Real asshole. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Shat the Movies, where we cover 80s and 90s movies. Uh, you can find out about that on shatthemovies.com. On behalf of my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert, and the King B, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Friday for the Game of Thrones Small Counselor Listener Mail Edition. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. <laughs>